series um, uh, in, involving what we normally call the Lord's Prayer, which uh, actually isn't ever designated as that in the scriptures. This is just Jesus' answer when the, uh, when the um, disciples asked him, how are we supposed to pray? Uh, which they asked him in response to his admonition that they were not supposed to pay, pray, pray like the heathens do. That, uh, you, you know, just nattering on forever and ever, not the deal. Doing stuff by rote, not the deal. Anyway, Jesus had all this. So he, out, he lays out this outline, and you can find the entire reality of the spiritual life in this. So we're going to read it once again from Matthew 6. <clears throat> Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Jeff, you're taking my intro, man. <laughs> I don't know what else I have to say now. <laughs> So as Jeff said, we are uh, continuing our sermon series entitled Thoughts and Prayers. And so we began uh, kind of entering into a life of prayer. We do that by entering in. We did that in our sermon series by entering through the Psalms, um, seeing what God has for us as that is kind of our our prayer book that we have been given as words to be able to pray back to God to express our deep emotions to Him, uh, the deep longings that we have. We're entitling this sermon series Thoughts and Prayers, as I've said, because um, as I was watching a basketball game, they kind of dropped the prayers line of thoughts and prayers, and it just felt short to me. Um, as our prayer life influences our thoughts, and our thoughts should influence our prayer lives, we want to see these bound back together. And one of the things that I've been talking about the whole time is that we have become disenchanted in our lives and in this world. We uh, fall into what some call the secular age. And so we have this imminent frame. The things that exist are those things that are touchable, that, those things that are quantifiable, those things that um, we have and can experience through our five senses, things that go beyond that, things that we would say as Christians are in the spiritual realm or as, uh, as Christ says in the prayer, um, in heaven, we would say those things aren't really there. But we still have this longing for transcendence in our lives. And prayer is one of those things that re-enchants our imaginations towards God, towards His existence, towards His activity in creation, towards his interest in our lives. Prayer stirs our imaginations. And Kenan did a great job entering us into the Lord's Prayer with the first phrase, kind of the invocation of the prayer, our Father in heaven last week. And But I want to pause before we get into this and ask why the Lord's Prayer? Why has this been something that has really, is very simple, um, my, Michael had it memorized very quickly when he was about three years old. It takes us, you know, a solid, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds to recite it. Um, it's such a simple thing for us to be able to, prayer, to pray 
Why is it so important? Well, I think part of it is that it's so simple. And in the transcendence that we've been talking about, it's not just that we're transcending the the natural world that we can experience here, but in praying the Lord's Prayer, we transcend time. So we can look back and we can look forward um, into uh, what will be as we continue to be the church throughout the ages that have prayed this prayer. We echo the words that the church has held on to and the way to be able to pray. Each of the lines of the Lord's Prayer, both here in Matthew and again he has it in, in Luke as well, serve as an arrow pointing to Jesus. And in that, it doesn't just bind us to the, trans, to the church that transcends time and echoing those words. It brings us near to Jesus. In praying the Lord's Prayer, we are able to pray the very words that Jesus prayed, that he instructed his disciples to pray. And that draws him near with us. The Our Father of the beginning doesn't just bind us to one another, through God and what he has done in Christ, but it also binds us to Jesus. We can pray the very thing that Jesus uh, told us, instructed us to be able to pray. This kind of brings up another question to me, though. Jesus begins, pray then like this. Is this a prayer that we pray exactly like we merely recite the words, or do we kind of use them as an outline, a kind of jumping off point? Well, I don't think we merely recite them, but I do think we recite them. We do that uh, every worship service here on Sunday, right? These words guide our thoughts and our prayers to be able to pray. Uh, The Lord's Prayer comes to us almost as a script for what God is doing in our lives and in the world. As Jeff said, this this really encompasses the fullness of what our life in God looks like. And it seeps into our imagination to shape our desires for what God desires. But I do believe it also serves as a jumping-off point. Yes, it is a script, but each line allows us some improvisation in that as well. We can recite a line, and then we can fill in some lines of our, our own as we pray it. We can say, Our Father in heaven, who is not like our earthly father, knows us completely, loves us totally, is willing to give us the good things that he desires for us and to keep us from the evil things that he does not desire for us. We can pray, your kingdom come. We can pray that God's rule and reign and justice would come down. We can get even really deep and intimate into our own lives of how we desire God's kingdom to be a part of our personal life, our family life, and the lives of those around us that we would get caught up in God's goodness and his mercy and his grace. Or we can go, hey, there are seven petitions within the Lord's Prayer, and we can use each of those throughout the week to guide our times of consolation and our desolation as we pray. Like, where did I hallow God's name today? And where did I not see God's name hallowed? Or where did I not hallow God's name which I think brings us to our line today. What does it mean to hallow God's name? And why does Jesus start here as the first petition that he instructs us to pray? So we're going to look at it. Hallowed be your 
name. Those three points. Hallowed be, one, two, your, and three, name. Hallowed be is an old English word that we uh, hardly ever use unless we write poetry or songs or uh, recite the Lord's Prayer. Um, This is not a word that is in our everyday vocab, um, and I don't know that it should be, uh, but at the same time, we continue to see Bible translators get away from it. The translation that we use was um, uh, written, I guess, or the translation was in the last 20 years, um, and so we still see them using the word hallowed. It means to honor, it means to make uncommon, it's something that's very special, but it means a bit more than that. To hallow something means to make it sacred, to sanctify it, for it to be holy and separate, something that is not used in common ways. I think this seems kind of like a no-brainer, and yet Jesus continues to instruct his disciples to hallow God's name. And it's a petition, right? It's do this. That means something is not being done, both in the disciples' lives as well as the lives of those around them, that we would reserve God to be the utmost in our lives, that his name would mean something special to us, that it would be something sacred, and it means that God is someone sacred, that nothing and no one can compete with him, period, but it also means that no one should compete with God in our lives. I think Jesus is reminding us that things do compete with God in our lives. Things that compete with God, Scripture calls idols. And our preference for them before God, we would call worship. David Foster Wallace says, There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we get to worship. Idols. Idols are anything, job, money, people, relationships, sex, power, security, being liked, saying the right things, besides Jesus that we worship, that we make our functional Savior in our lives. Those things that mean so much to to us that we believe we would die without them. Tim Keller says, an idol is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. If I only had more blank, then my life would be on track. If I only had more money, if I only had more sex, if I only had more power, these are often the main idols that we talk about in the church. I would argue that control and power is maybe the most sneaky of the, thing, of the three. We love to believe that we are in control. I love to believe that I am in control. And I, there's, there's a thing that happens, right? Like we go to exercise control in our lives. And as soon as we begin to grasp for those things that we want to move in the direction that we want to move them for our kids to act a certain way, for our job to go a certain way, for our relationships to be a certain thing, we usually find out, at least it's true for me, that I am in less control than I really wanted to be, than I ever was from the beginning. I cannot control my kids. I cannot control Uh, work how I'd like to. I cannot control relationships in the ways that I want them to. The idol of control tells us that we are in in charge, 
and that we can ensure the outcome of our lives. If we're in charge, we can especially avoid pain and suffering and maybe even control God himself. In his book, With Sky, Jathani outlines four ways which we often approach God, each of them subtly trying to ex- exercise power and authority over him. There's the under, and he uses over as one of the prepositions, but he uses four prepositions in this. We, are, we live our lives under God. We perform morally. We follow his rules perfectly, so then we can tell him, because we have done what he has asked us to do, that we can tell him what we believe we deserve in this life. The second one is over. This is where I tell God what to do as well, but it's because in my understanding of how the world works, I can go through and say, well, photosynthesis, this is how the the gardens function, this is how crops come about, and so I know how this world works, and I can tell God that this is what um, I need in my life. The third one is from God. We live in a consumeristic view of who God is. He's a divine butler, and we make God in our own image. He exists to supply what we need and desire in our lives. The last one that he says is that we live for God. I will work for God uh, so that I will I can avoid pain and suffering. And he says this is a really classic one that we have in the church. We put God's mission above God himself. But he says the preposition that is used most often in Scripture, throughout Scripture, is the fifth approach, and that is life with God. To be able to live in relationship with him is at the core of how we exist with God. The goal is God himself. Jesus places hallowed be your name as the first Petition because he knows we are prone to worship so many other things or that we will try to manipulate God to get what we want. Our hearts are pulled in every which way that says this is going to solve your problems of your life. But this petition, hallowed be your name, is approaching God on his terms. Yes, he is father. He is near. He is close and intimately cares for us, but he is also sacred, holy, and above all. He is a transcendent and imminent God at the same time. Take some work for us to sit down and to think and reflect what do we hallow? What is that thing that we want to fill in the blank uh, that tells us that we are going to have life um, all figured out? In other words, what do you worship other than God? What would be the prized possession that you put on your coffee table to show everything? What would be the first to show everyone? What would be the first thing you would list in your bio? What do you spend money on your most? Uh, Let me say that again. What do you spend the most money on in your life? How and where do you try to exert control? These are litmus tests for those things that we hallow before God. That's why he says your name, right? It's not my name. It's not some other people's names. It's yours, God. Your name be hallowed. It keeps our attention on God 
but not in a way that so much separates us, that we're sacred and separate, but that we're sacred and close to him. God created us in his image in the very beginning. God says he made male and female, and in his image, he created them. This is what we often call the Imago Dei. We were created to be image bearers of God, to reflect his perfect reign and rule where we are. But as we so quickly read in the first book of the Bible, it's barely chapter 3. When Adam and Eve have forgotten this and begin to get it all wrong. And we continue to carry that brokenness in our reflection, like a shattered mirror, a mirror that doesn't point to God and it points elsewhere, either at ourselves or at someone else. We were made, though, to reflect uh, God's beauty in the world by being made in His image. So often, post fall, post Adam and Eve, that we want to reflect so many other things, and not all of it is beautiful. Beauty is one of our values here at the table. We want to reflect the beauty of God, not our own beauty, not my beauty, not who we want to, how we want to reflect, um, but we want to reflect God's beauty, to reflect His grace, His mercy, His love that He has poured out in our lives. Beauty always contrasts ugliness. It is relative, but it also has an objective quality to it, right? We know it when we see it. Beauty, in classic philosophical terms, is placed alongside truth and goodness as one of the transcendentals. In other words, it transcends cultural values and is unchanged, though we would probably argue this, or there would be people that would argue this in kind of our postmodern secular age that we live in. But in the church, we often talk about truth and goodness. Truth is absolute. It emanates from God and what Jesus came to reveal himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Goodness, we often speak of in the church. Jesus reminded us that no one is good but God alone. But beauty is not very often talked about. And sometimes it's even ignored. Churches used to be major patrons of the arts, but even church buildings nowadays serve more pragmatic purposes than beautific purposes and often look like warehouses or um, uh, storehouses than places of awe and wonder. There seems to be too many other things to worry about in life than making sure that things are beautiful. Or are there? Beauty is thought to be an aspect that unites truth and goodness. Theologians remind us that Jesus was beautiful both as a person and in his work. Beauty brings us joy and peace and ultimately salvation. We were at Great Wolf Lodge this weekend and we were reflecting, when was the last time we were here? Oh, it was pre-COVID. There's a lot of things that have changed at Great Wolf Lodge post-COVID. Like there's no buffet anymore. Breakfast buffet. I'm not a huge breakfast buffet guy, but it would have been nice to have a breakfast buffet. I, um, and Joshua wasn't born yet. Um, We didn't know what this world was going to be. I remember in the middle of COVID um, walking through, we'd spent a lot of time in our house. We were kind of locked in. We weren't going places. We didn't even drive up to get on the highway to go anywhere, so I never really even saw the mountains were there. I did take lots of walks, though. And on one of my walks, I was praying, 
And it struck me, the thing that I was hungering for was beauty. I said, Lord, I need beauty. I need to see your beauty because I need to see that you are moving and working in this world when it doesn't seem like you are. I need to be able to see beyond my circumstances to know that faith, hope, and love are still things that you're going to bring about, that you are still with me. Help me to see and to taste that you are good. And I ended my prayer without an amen because I didn't know that it would be so. And I was waiting for God to be able to pay attention to me like a toddler hangs on the arms of their parents. Fyodor Dostoevsky and the idiot says, Beauty will save the world. Beauty is salvific because God is the supreme display of beauty. Not us, not someone else, God. Ultimately, in COVID, I began gardening. We began to be able to host people in a different way than what we were doing. We began to see God's beauty because we were looking for it. We were longing for it. We should be looking and longing for it and creating it, but especially as we reflect God's image in our lives. This could mean a lot of different things for all of us. I don't always know what it means for me. I find that I misimage God uh, even as I'm trying to image him. I think as we do immediately after our entrance in worship, that we confess our sins and we repent and we receive absolution, I think maybe reflecting God's beauty can begin with our repentance of where we have not reflected his image, where we have not um, experienced and shared his reign and rule in our lives, even as hard as we've, we've tried to. Lastly, his name. Hallowed be your name. It's not obvious in most translations, uh, but God does have a name. We flip through the Bible and we maybe look for it like John or Chris or Steve, uh, but we're not going to find it. Um, Instead, we find a lot of other names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, But we do begin to see this word Lord a lot in all caps um, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Lord isn't exactly God's name, but it is. It more represents God's name. And to figure this mystery out, we have to flip back to Exodus 3. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, and they were ready to leave, and God brought up a Savior, Moses. He was pretty hesitant to lead God's people out of Egypt, though, and in their encounter at the burning bush, Moses asked God a question. He says, so when I go to the Israelites and I tell them that God wants me to lead them out of slavery in Egypt, and they say, what's his name? What am I going to tell them? It's a pretty reasonable question, but God responds this way. I am who I am. He said, say this, I am has sent you, has sent me to you. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. I am 
who I am. It's not really a name we would expect. It's more of a phrase. And it often gets shortened to main consonants in that phrase, Y-H-W-H, or Yahweh. Anytime you read the all-caps word Lord in the Bible, it's actually representing the personal name of God. We've continued this tradition from over a thousand years ago, um, before, excuse me, from over uh, several thousand years ago when the Hebrew was translated, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek and they subbed the word Kyrios, which is the Greek word for Lord, for the name Yahweh. And in some mysterious way, God giving us his name tells us that he exists. And if he exists, then his name signifies his sheer transcendence. He is not like other gods. He cannot be manipulated or tricked. He is no mere mortal. But also he has a name. He is near to us, and we can call on him to be available. He is imminent and transcendent. One Jewish commentator says, God's pronouncement of his own name indicates that the divine personality can be known only to the extent that God chooses to reveal his self, and it can be truly characterized only in terms of itself, not by analogy with something else. This not only gets at the identity of God and who he is, but it gets at our identity also. We each have a name. We hear it through a crowded, noisy room. It catches our attention above anything else. And yet, in our baptism, we are given a new name. In baptism, Jesus instructs in Matthew 28 to baptize into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those those three identities are in one name, and when we are baptized into it, we are formed into a new identity. We are no longer defined by our personality profiles, our enneagrams, our politics, race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. We are Jeff in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are Woody in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I am Mark in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This places us in the community of the church. We do not get to act out of our own accord. We live in relationships with all of those around us. This doesn't mean we're perfect at it. We're going to sin against God and one another, but his name continues to bind us together. When I worked at the restaurant in Chicago, they gave me a chef's coat to put on when I came in. And it didn't have my name on it. It had Bon Soiree, the name of the restaurant. No one actually had their name on their chef's coat, including the executive chef who owned the restaurant and ran the kitchen and did everything. He had Bon Soiree. I didn't get to act in my own way. I didn't get to act outside of what he had planned for us as a team. I was there to function as a part of it, to be bon soiree, to make sure that working side by side with one another, we were able to welcome and live into that name, bon soiree. Our name that we receive in our baptism, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, reminds us that we are bound to God. 
I think the whole shocking, the shocking part of this whole petition comes when God does give his name to another. Paul writes in Philippians, Therefore God also highly exalted Christ Jesus and gave him the name that is above every other name. We are able to fully see the transcendent God become imminent in Jesus' incarnation. He does this not to strike fear into our hearts, but to give himself fully to us, to die for us, so that even though we have distorted the image of God, we know that we can have our lives resurrected in Christ's life. Jesus hallows God's name in us. And so together, let us pray and respond to God using the Lord's Prayer. It's written out in the next page. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.